This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your life and with your community. Welcome to Query. Hey there, Queeros. Welcome back. Episode three. Whew. Doesn't it feel like it's been three episodes? It does. I feel good. So we've gotten to know Rhea Butcher. We've gotten to know Solomon Giorgio. And today on the show, we'll get to know Jill Soloway. They are the creator of the Emmy Award winning series, Transparent. You know, somebody that has really opened the door for a lot of people in the entertainment industry by being themselves and by writing their story. I loved this conversation with Jill, and I hope that you will too. And, hey, why don't you do me a favor? Since you're enjoying this podcast, because I know you are, can you please subscribe on iTunes? Can you please like us and write a rave review that helps us become more visible to new listeners? And tweet about us. My handle is at Cameron Esposito, and I would love to see you there. Let's go find now who we are. Well, um, I'm just, I am overjoyed to be here speaking with you. Uh, well, first of all, listeners, welcome to Query. And something that I do on the show is I have guests introduce themselves. Okay. So maybe could you tell, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Jill Soloway and I am an artist. I like to make television programs. I like to do some filmmaking. I'm interested in social justice. And I fancy myself a queer revolutionary. <laughs> I love having people introduce themselves because I like hearing, like, what's the first word that somebody would use to describe themselves? So you are an artist first, but also a queer revolutionary. Yes. I would say that I think the culture agrees with you. I think yeah. the zeitgeist agrees with those descriptors. Yeah. I, I came to this conclusion that I wanted to use the artist, use the word artist as my identifier, like in the past year. It helped me to just feel less shame about, well, would a showrunner really act this way? Or would a comedy writer do this? Oh, it's talk- like, okay, I'm an artist. That's what I am. And then the other things are things I do, like make a TV show. Oh, my God. Talk to me more about that. I'm going to tell you why. I've been using in my own brain. This is the first time I've ever said it yeah. to another person that isn't Rhea. Yeah. I've been using in my brain. I hope you say that over uh, and over again to me for the rest of your life <laughs> about everything you ever say to me. <laughs> I've been using, and like, I know, I just didn't have the, I didn't have a better word. I've been using the word visionary mm, Yeah, <laughs> in my brain to describe myself because um, when you are, I'm very specific as a person and yeah. I have found that as a queer person, as a woman, sometimes people go, you are controlling, and I say, no, I have vision. They say you're controlling? Or like just, um, yeah, I like not visionary. Con- you see what you want. I don't mean that, not controlling, but like too, like that's too much to ask kind right. of a thing. That would be true if you were just a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. Sure. But you're not. Sure. You're a visionary. <laughs> visionary. Yeah, I love that. I think visionary is great. And how... How I think we have to grab those titles. We have to say those things I about know. ourselves. I mean, it's just, just disgusting and perfect at the same time. Yeah. I feel awful and sweaty about it, but, but it's also like, good. It's so far out there, visionary, that everything you do can be within <laughs> that giant. You create a so giant play space for yourself, a huge McDonald's play place to be in. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about why you feel artist gives you different permissions. Or like, what are you? What do you need permission to do on set well, as a showrunner? Not just on set. I think in life, I'm all. I'm just sort of thinking about the movement and thinking about politics and revolution and patriarchy, and a lot of those are very cumbersome things for a showrunner to be talking about. Absolutely, and maybe annoying to producers. I think or that's to what I'm talking about. People. I think that's what I'm talking about. I think yeah. you're saying. What I was you can say, to say artist if you want instead of visionary. If it feels better. <laughs> no, but I mean, as a to talk about why. Yeah. Uh, because it does feel like it fits into like a larger thing, and if a, if that's not 
what other people are working towards. Yeah. And that's okay, you know, because we are in an industry. So if people are working towards money. Yes, money making. That's, that makes a lot of sense to me. Sure. I, Do you ever wonder if we're fooling ourselves? Pretending like what we're doing matters more than money? No, because I know that I'm okay with making money doing my job. Are you okay with making money doing your job? Yes, I think I am. I mean, I think I've always been very focused on this idea that I want to change the world. I want to change the world for women. I want to change the world for queer people. And I used to say it before transparent in meetings. I used to go into like my pitch meetings at CBS or Fox and be like, I want to do things that have never never been done before and I want to change the world. And you can see on their faces, they're like, ooh, good. You know? Yeah. That was like a second or a third or a fourth thing, but they really love people who come in and say, I want to write the next great American television show. Right. Aren't we blessed that we get to live in this moment uh, where those so. things can actually yes. intersect? Totally. Actually, you know what? I should just say thank you. Oh, I think that you've been really instrumental in uh, changing. It's good for everyone when political change becomes a sellable commodity. Like mm-hmm. it actually is in because television and entertainment changes the way that we think about taking up space and what's acceptable. Yeah. It does have to, there has to be a thing that's making money that's yeah. also changing the world. Yeah. Not everything that's changing the world has to make money. Yeah. But there but have to be things that are. of them. Yeah. And um, you do that too. I feel like you do that too. I remember listening to you on Mark Marin and just, feeling like the the line shifted again. You know, because what you do with your comedy, um, you, found, you find a way to be both really political, really powerful, and also have a huge sense of humor about yourself. There's kind of, there's, you, you, you sort of weave around the earnest thing, but you don't give up your power. And yeah, yeah. that's huge. Yeah, it's, it's really- hard to name other people who are doing what you're doing. Oh, wow, it's really intentional. It's really intentional because um, when I started doing stand-up, we we had, like, no rights. <laughs> I mean, so I I would be, you know, the fifth comic in a lineup talking about marriage equality, and everybody else would be talking about it, like, with dog marriage jokes. And from a perspective of it's a topic. Yeah. And I just felt like I needed to say, it's a person. I'm Mm -hmm. the person. Would you like to meet me? Yeah. And fake, you know, a certain amount of confidence and peace. And then also work towards confidence and peace. Do those You're faking it worked on me. (laughs) I bought it. I'm like, this person is very confident. Well, I mean, I am confident. Um, I want to talk more. I want to go back for a second about, you said you've always been working towards, first of all, I literally, I mean, I know what your production company is called. It's called Topple. Yes. So you've always been working in this vein, but really always? Like, could you track the, could you track the time frame in your life where you had like an awareness of even the fact that the patriarchy exists? Like, where does that come from in you? Yeah, I do have like a moment um, being a little kid in the classroom looking around at the pictures of all the presidents and and a real like bodily upset at them all being male. Like the pain to not just see one or two or three men, but to see 40 in a row and to not have it be talked about. You know, they weren't called the male presidents. They were just called the presidents. So when you're a eight-year-old kid and you learn that and they're not saying why there are no girls up there, there are no women up there, they're just saying it, um, it creates like the, yeah, an internal sense of, wow, this is, there's something really fucked up, but I can't name it. You know, you don't, you can't name it. You just know that you're not allowed. You weren't welcome. And I think as a little girl, you think there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with women that they're not smart enough to be president. And they just, they haven't told us that part yet. Do you think you could guesstimate your age? When, when that happened? That? Yeah. yeah, I think it was like eight. That's pretty amazing because I think I didn't, I mean, I think I didn't have that awareness until I was like in college. Looking at uh, 
You know, there's this really interesting, I think about this all the time. There's this really interesting statistic that the Gina Davis Institute found about crowd scenes Mm. in movies where it's, I think it's 80% of crowds, of members of a crowd are male in movies. And it's not different in animation. So even if there's somebody drawing it, we still draw this world because like that's what we're used to looking at. I mean, I don't think I noticed, I don't think I just, I just didn't notice. I didn't notice how many faces I was looking at that had like mutton chops. Mm -hmm. And strange, Uh, strange wigs. Yeah. And strange wigs. How do you think you got there at eight? Well, my mom was really involved in feminism, but at that point, at that point it was called the ERA. We were all, all about the ERA. And it was, you know, in the 60s, the early 70s in Chicago, there was a civil rights movement going on. There was the ERA movement going on. There were, you know, we knew who the Black Panthers were and they came and marched in our neighborhood on the 4th of July. We lived in this integrated community where everybody was attempting to prove with our very like bodies and homes that black and white people could and should live together. What neighborhood did you live in? South Commons, 28th in Michigan, about halfway between downtown and Hyde Park, not far from Comiskey Park. Oh, wow. Not far from Robert Taylor That's where you grew up? Yeah. When did your family settle there? Like, were your parents the the people that moved to that neighborhood? Or yes, there? my no, my parents. You no, know, because it was a brand new neighborhood. It was an experiment. When I was I was born in um, a neighborhood called Lake Meadows, um, which was also right there by Mercy Hospital, by Michael Reese Hospital. My dad worked there, um, and so yeah, we lived in these apartment buildings in that neighborhood. And then they built this community that was intended for people to you know, get to know each other, different incomes, different races. It was created by this company called Habitat, and it was meant as an urban experiment. What? That's amazing. I know. <laughs> and it makes so much sense in Chicago because that's – I'm also from Chicago. I know. But I'm from the suburbs, and um, that means a very different thing than a <laughs> political yeah. and uh, integrated experiment. I mean, for those people that are not familiar with Chicago, I always say, like, we literally have two baseball teams. Yes. Like it's such a segregated city. And that like and, and, and a messed up, there was a real sort of like psychological feeling going down the Dan Ryan. Oh, yeah. To the south side where the Robert Taylor homes were on the left. And, you know, Bridgeport was on the right. And, you know, you're sort of taught on either side you can't get out of your car. Like the Bridgeport is dangerous. A black person can't walk around in Bridgeport. A white person can't walk around in Robert Taylor homes. It reminds me a lot of what I'm learning about Israel and Palestine right now where there's this idea about otherness where people are just like, oh, you can't go there. Absolutely. You'll get killed if you go there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to, I lived in Logan Square for a while in my early 20s and then I was in social work school at the University of Chicago. And those neighborhoods are like that's not close to each other, but I used to ride my bike sometimes. Mm. And uh, so, how would you get there from Logan Square? Did you go down like uh, what would I go down? Michigan like? or Indiana or Wabash? I think or? I would actually literally like go down California and then like straight down. Yeah, I mean, it, what an amazing bike ride though to take California down to like it was an amazing bike like ride. Fifty fifty third or something. I would also say that the streets are not bikeable. Uh, past like, mm, I don't know, grand going south. Like you, you start to realize, oh, uh, this is not, this is like not even paved for this kind of transportation, which would be a cheaper type of transportation that people living in a neighborhood that maybe needed some options could use, but you like straight up can't. It's really difficult. Yeah. Um, but that is a, it's a super interesting bike ride. And then once you get to University of Chicago, it's like white, enclave, yeah. bastion of intellectualism surrounded yeah. by all black neighborhoods. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, Chicago really isn't talked about enough by, like, people like you and I as uh, as a city that has so much racial There's so much division. Ra- yeah, there's so much division. Like, yeah, these, like, sort of very boundaried pockets of neighborhoods where where, yeah, they're, they're people kind of stay put in particular places. And I think that's why South Commons was so great there because it was a little bit of everybody from all around this neighborhood and pulled people in, not just African-American people and white people, but all kinds of people, um, a lot of immigrants. And 
Yeah, it was a really special place to grow up. The way that the townhouses were built were around these courtyards. So all the children played together in the middle and the parents would sit out on their little stoops, having their little beer after dinner, glass of tomato juice, chatting. And the kids played games, tag, hide and seek, kickball. So we had a very, it was very communal, but everybody had their own house. But we didn't, re, I didn't realize how much we were kind of living a communal dream. And because my mom was such an activist and she got her master's in urban planning at University of Illinois and was really kind of like doing her thesis about this neighborhood and how this neighborhood, you know, we were really feeling like we were living in a neighborhood that was going to become an example for the whole world so that everybody could love each other. How does one go from that childhood to anything else? Like, so then you, like, what age did you? Then's like somewhere around like the early 80s. All I remember is like Reagan, fur coats, sure. Dynasty, fur coats is for real. Yeah. Love boat, like we're we're getting out. Like we don't we don't believe any of this crap anymore. It's time to move to the near north side. We're going to the Gold Coast. My mom got a fur. Something changed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Something changed. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it was the economy. You know, because right. it was like from Carter to Reagan. Yeah. So when Carter was president, like it made sense to believe all of this. And then Reagan became president. Of course, it seemed awful in the beginning. And then suddenly it's the 80s and here we go. Yeah. To the near, yeah. Exactly. And then we were living sort of near Rush Street, near the Playboy Mansion. I went to school at Ogden, you know, hang, hanging out at the at Water Tower Place was my mall. That's where I stole from. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, what an interesting yeah. transformation. I feel like so few... Um, I feel like so few white people do what do that, uh, like from yeah. being around a bunch of different types of people yeah. to moving to like sort of white safety. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think well. We, so by the time we moved, by the time we left South Commons, we, Faith and I were the only white kids in the school, which was awesome, and really I think helped make me who I am. You know, we sort of for the for the for like the I would say first grade to fourth grade. Um, because the kid, the parents started out believing in this idea and then started one by one pulling their kids out of the school and sending them to private schools. And my mom was writing her thesis about the school that we were in. It was very much like writing a TV show about your family. You know, she was writing her thesis about, so yeah, turning our lives into, you know, a kind of like memoir of sorts or a product of sorts was already happening, I guess, in retrospect. I'm just realizing this right now. Wow. That's, Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, and she was writing a newsletter. She was sort of documenting our lives. And um, we, you know, it was, again, it was the civil rights movement. So Faith and I were standing up there during the assemblies singing, you know, we are young, gifted, and black. And that's a fact. Those are the lyrics. (laughs) Right, Um, right. Yeah. (laughs) And coloring in our Color Me Coffee coloring books and feeling other, you know, in that world and feeling very much at home as other in a black world. So, and then, so when you imagine like feeling very other in a black world, but feeling very much a part of a civil rights movement. And then at the same time, my parent is trans this whole time, but not out. So as I look back on my childhood and recognize that my, my, that my parent has been trans since she was born, but she was putting on a role of a father, of a man, of a, a male doctor, you know, all of the things that she was being in our childhood, how couldn't I have made this transition into this person, this this feeling of like, you know, this kind of revolutionary person who needs to believe I'm part of a revolution to get up every morning and who actually I feel like I have this kind of weird X-ray ability to see the world in reversed genders because of that. So like even before my parent was out, I had a whole idea about a movie where all the genders were reversed. Talk to me about what you mean by that. Well, my parent came out when they were 70 years old. Right, but the but, genders being yeah, reversed. Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a whole movie that I, was the first thing I ever sold out here, which was about a world where the genders were reversed. It was called Bud Boy, and it was about a teenage boy who's, whose mom fell in love with a dude who was a model for Budweiser. Because <laughs> I like, <laughs> remember hating the Bud Girls growing up. I couldn't stand like the Bud Girls in Chicago. They would walk around... 
Chicago Fest, which was what Taste of Chicago used to be called. Uh-huh. It's coming out. Yeah. I can't stop it. No, I mean, I'll, I'll bring out your Chicago accent if you really want me to. You can talk about Lumelnati's or Giordano's or whatever you want. Exactly. Italian but, beef. Yeah. Classic so were, Italian beef. The bud girls were like this thing. that, And, you know, it's just like any gross sexism, Playboy bunnies or beauty pageant chicks or whatever. But, like, I was obsessed with, like, how gross they were. And so I just kind of wanted to do a story about, like, what if my dad fell in love with a bud girl, left my mom for a bud girl in a gender-reversed world. So it was like a movie about sexism with the genders reversed. Came out here and, like, sold it to Michael Schamberg and Stacey Scher. <laughs> These are, like, huge producers. Yeah. And they gave me the money to write the movie. Wow. Okay. I want to say— Maybe we'll make that movie one day. Yeah. First of all, I definitely want to— You know, when I was <laughs> when I was first starting as a stand-up comic, I worked promotions— which is like what those people are doing. They they work promotions. And but I would never be the bud girl. I would be like like one like one year it was Thanksgiving and I had to promote a Thanksgiving party dressed as like all of I mean this is also very racist, but they had like na- like horrible Halloween version Native American like Squaw, you know, would be what would be written on the of course. packaging. Yeah, at a Halloween superstore costumes, and they gave those to all the hot, uh, like course. heteronormative girls. And I had to wear a pilgrim outfit that was meant for like a six foot five dude, <laughs> and travel around with a turkey, like a like a a, a live turkey. No, like a dude dressed as a turkey. Oh, okay. It was like a dude dressed as a turkey, <laughs> me in the baggiest, and, then and like a bunch some, of hot. I mean, and Let's, also, like, I'm really glad I wasn't wearing that yeah. racist outfit. Yeah, but. I'm glad that you knew <laughs> that you didn't force yourself into the costume of, like, hot chick. Because you probably could have, right? Uh, I mean, I think I gave that up in, like, high school is probably when I gave that up. Started high school with, like, knee-high socks and a short. Do, do you Wait, remember? what high school did you go to? I went to Bennett, which okay. is in Lyle. It's like Lyle. a little bit far in the but okay. I know that Lyle has an can, S in it. I can give you some Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can give you some context for it. Um Lyle. Diablo I can't fucking believe yeah. Cody went to my high school. Oh my god, yeah. And she wrote um Juno about of my course. high school. Yeah. Um and also she wrote this book or this movie called Jennifer's Body. Yeah. And the cover of that, like the poster for that movie is essentially Megan Fox wearing our school uniform. Wow. Like, it's like a very short skirt and, like, knee-high socks. And Can I ask you whatever. a question about short skirts and yes. Catholic girls? of course. At some point mm-hmm. over the past, let's say, 40 years, Yes. why haven't the nuns gotten together and gone, we should update this thing that we make them wear is actually very sexy to most, and we should make them wear pants now? Because there's a pornographic industry that has sprung up around the costume we make girls wear to Catholic school. How come the nuns never had that meeting? I mean, I, I can answer that. Okay. Because the nuns are not in charge. The priests are in so charge. So you think the priests actually think it's sexy and they want to keep the no, girls in sexy clothing? I don't think that the priests always think it's sexy, but, um, you know, I went to Catholic school my whole life. And I will say, like, the fact that women can't consecrate mass like they, they they can't make the thing which is that you're supposed to take the bread and you turn it into right. the body of Jesus like if you can't do that thing um and also pregnant in pregnancy you're a vessel yeah so you're literally you never have any power you're right. either something to be filled or something to like receive something from a receive bread you're only a receptor um I'm noticing this yard work, but I'm going to finish this point anyway yeah. because I'm making a really good point. Yeah, uh, no. Yeah. No, I, you, mean, I thought you were just so, thinking about being a receptor and you right. just stopped. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, like you're only a receptor. You Cameron are. Cameron got triggered and she just stopped. You're only a receptor. Hosting. So like, of course you need a skirt because you're a receptor. Okay, but at some point, didn't any nun go, we didn't let them wear pants in the beginning because pants were too form-fitting. Right. But a loose pant at this point would be better than the short skirt. I feel like every nun I've ever known is doing <laughs> more work than any other human being I've ever known. So they, like, they wouldn't notice to, that the short skirt has taken a turn in our culture's imagination. I mean, I'm not actually exaggerating when I say that I used, to, I used to be like this really religious person too. Yeah. I have literally been to a leper colony. 
Like that's where nuns are. Nuns are like dealing with the fact that you're going to say that third world that, countries that two nuns couldn't have gotten together <laughs> and notice that pants would work better <laughs> when what they're attempting to do is create a demure feel. I don't know the dudes at my the dudes in power at my high school were constantly getting in trouble for looking up high school teen girl skirts. Uh-huh. It was a thing. It was a known thing. There were certain classes where you'd be like, "Hey, look out." Because that teacher or dean or whatever wants to look up your skirt. It's awful. Yeah. So I did end up wearing pants by the end of high school. It's so awful. Yeah. There are so many awful things. Can I say another awful thing that happened at Lane Tech? Yes. All the boys had to swim naked. What? Up until a pretty late date. Swimming for the boys was naked in Chicago public high schools. I'm not lying, Cameron. I don't think you're lying. There's no part of my face that this is a genuine. This, this is, is a Chicago sh- public school <laughs> policy that for all these boys, some who are entering puberty, some who are in puberty, first day of high school, they all have to actually have gym class naked together, swimming. Because Oof. some fucked up coaches decided that it was fun for them, and they didn't change it until around like the 80s. Like, this was going on. I've met so many men who went to Chicago Public High School who had to swim naked at my school, too, until it was co-ed, who were totally traumatized. And there, this is a class action lawsuit waiting to happen. This is something we could do on our, on our, on our free time. Do you want to get that? Let's, I mean, I would love. <laughs> Actually, this is making me, now I want to ask you this follow-up question. Um, how did you, so you had this, I mean, I can't even, I cannot relate at all to the childhood that you're talking about. Um, I can relate to it a little bit as an adult. How, how did you feel about your body as a kid? Growing mm. up in, a, in an environment where like things were a little bit topsy-turvy, did that do anything to... And then you're also experimenting with, you know, you're writing that screenplay, like things are... Well, the screenplay was like when I was 30. Right, so, but I just mean like in the... But I did have an awareness of, about gender as a kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think I sort of see like a couple of ter- of body turning points. I'm obsessed with the idea that there are powerful men who can stick their tummies out and still be sexy and still be powerful. But for women, the only time they can really stick their tummy out is when they're pregnant. And so I'm like I'm also looking around this age of like 8 or 9 of when you start holding your stomach in. Yeah. And so I think that was the first big turning point, you know, because like you're a little girl and you have your hands on your hips and your tummy's up and you're just like proud and ungendered. Then people start looking at you and they start going, you're cute or you're thin or you're not cute or you're not thin enough. And then you start to do the pose of holding your stomach in. And this is almost like the first thing that women do to lose their power is to just realize they have to like tighten their tummy. And then... A few years later, you go through puberty. For me, I went through puberty really late. For whatever reason, I didn't get my period until I was like 16. So went through most of high school like a child. Um, And then, yeah, went through puberty. And then like suddenly I still had like my child's body, but I had huge breasts. It's a hard word to say because it's hard to know when to end the word. It is hard to know when to end the word. (laughs) You go on, you could repeat it. Breasts. Tits, some people call them. Um. <laughs> I straight up use boobs. I do, boobs which is, is like, fine too. It's not actually fine. They're none of them are good. No, I know. I don't. I don't like any of them because they're all said about us. I agree. I don't like any of the words either. I also don't. It's so weird. Like I don't mind. For me, I do not mind having them if I have a bra on and a shirt on. I really yeah. like. I think that um, I have pretty big boobs, and I think that they make me. When I look at myself, I think that they make me look like I have like a strapping chest, mm-hmm. like just just some like I'm just like a big like a yeah like I think I look like they're Jason. your huge muscles. I think I look like Jason Momoa in my head. <laughs> that's I'm like just like look at how ripped I am. Yeah, um, right. Because a lot of guys who are ripped have huge boobs. Right. Yeah. That's that's what you think of them. That's as, what I think of them. Yeah, like ripped. As, but we don't have a word for that. Thing. Yeah, you have like ripped woman man boobs, <laughs> and they're not ripped. They're like definitely <laughs> regular, like not ripped boobs. Like they're like they're. I mean, I'm you know trying to lift, but yeah. right now they continue to be yeah uh, squarely in the zone of like you know fat pockets. Yes, they are. For, yes, well, we won't call people. them fat pockets today. That's not going to be our coining. 
<laughs> no. But I, got, I do remember, yeah, that transition, you know, in high school. You go through that, like, you know, you're waiting for the bus. In my case, it was the 151 sure. LaSalle. And you're waiting for the bus. And, um, yeah, men, men are driving by and honking at you now all of a sudden. They're honking their horns. You're like 16 at this point? Is yeah. when you Junior in high school. Yeah. You're, they're yelling things at you out the window. Grown-ass men. People your parents' age are now taking you in. Now you belong to all the men of the world. That's, the, I, I think, turning point number two. Mm. First, it's like, I'm going to hold my stomach in. And it's like, puberty, I look like a lady. I'm not even, I don't belong to myself anymore. For the first one, do you notice, because I have seen, I see so many pictures of myself when I'm on stage, and I feel the most free when I'm on stage. Mm. And I also really think about my breathing. I really think about being uh, rooting through the floor. Mm. Like it, Like I have, prior to learning anything about yoga or like anything about crystals and like stuff mm-hmm. that people in LA would be into. My experience of doing standup is, is like religious mm. um, and spiritual. And I noticed that in those pictures. That makes sense for a visionary. <laughs> Cause I'm a visionary. Joe. Yeah. I don't know if you <laughs> I know this. Um, but yeah. So I noticed that when I uh, am doing standup, I, my posture is really different mm. than I think it is other times. I really do stick my stomach out for sure. You do. Yeah. It's cool. Because I'm like doing a lot of, you know, whatever that like. You're feeling convex. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Comfortably convex. Yeah. How do you think you, do you think you are still, where Where are you with? I'm still figuring it all out. Mm-hmm. I still, you know, I'm so immersed in a world of trans people and trans thought. And I'm constantly thinking about gender. So things that seem totally normal to me, I'll sort of step, step outside of the world of transparent or outside of the world of topple and encounter people who don't have as much experience with thinking about gender. And I'll realize how immersed I am in it. But yeah, I'm obsessed. And I think about it all the time. And I think about, I'm sort of constantly doing a little like self-test of trying to figure out where and when and how in my body I lost my feeling of being the subject in the world, the main guy. That's really... The the instead of the that. And so one of the things we, you know, we're doing on Transparent this year is like Shelly takes improv and she becomes obsessed with being this character named Mario. And when Shelly is Mario, she can just eat. And she can just be, and she can be like, fuck you. This is like my obsession with the convex old Italian guy who's... Sticks his tummy out, and you know what? He's still I am essentially sexy. a convex old Italian guy. <laughs> like for sure, that's gonna be me. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, you're just like, yeah, these are my man boobs, and this is my belly, and I and all the chicks like me. <laughs> if you could talk about, if you could talk about your gender, but not using, like, you don't have to use any. I mean, the the joke that I have about it is that I say my gender is fighter pilot. But mm. when I've been talking to people on this show, I mean, really, like. The person who, Fighter if pilot. I look at somebody, the person who I look at and I think that's me is like David Bowie, hmm. which is, which is, I don't think that that person's body has anything to do with my body. Hmm. Um, and that's, I think, how part of the way that I know like gender is distinct from bodies, like everything else, because yeah, that person and I would not look the same in clothes. Yeah. Uh, but just like if I looked at their color or whatever. Yeah. I'm really into these days, and again, like I feel lucky enough that I can evolve this week after week. Yes. I'm really into the idea of having zero gender, like no gender, invisible gender. And I I like to feel invisible in my gender. So then when when a valet guy calls me ma'am like he did last night, I get like shooken out of my reality. I'm like, what is he looking at that he's seeing a ma'am? Is it because I'm 50 or because I have short hair <laughs> or like, I mean, I like went to a party the other night and I was wearing a full tracksuit, red and white tracksuit, you know, and white gym shoes. And like these days I don't wear makeup anymore. I cut my hair short enough. I don't even look in the mirror really. You know, I'm not like, what am I presenting? I'm just like, I'm out. Got my tracksuit on, going to a party and feel a little bit like a woman, a little bit like a man, a little bit like Jill, a little bit like some guy named Joe. But whatever it is, I don't want anybody mamming me. <laughs> I, I was on a date and like 
we got out of the Uber and, and she was really femme and like we have our own little dynamic. And then the guy's like, okay, ladies, you know, okay, thanks, ladies. I'm like, what does he see when he sees the two of us and he's calling us ladies? I literally feel like I'm an elephant and he's calling me an igloo. Like he's wow. not seeing my species. He's not seeing if I'm alive or dead. Like ladies about me and the woman I'm dating getting out of an Uber to go into a party. He sees ladies. I'm like, I'm like when, you call, when you're calling me a lady and I'm dressed like a guy, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing for you? Are you insulting me because it makes you feel better? Or do you actually think we're really cute ladies? One looks like a lady and one doesn't, but we're both ladies. I think that my experience of this, because I, I do have a partner that presents like very neutral. Uh, you guys get ladies when you guys go out? Hello, ladies. Sometimes. Does, I, do I you go crazy? I feel like some. Times it's actually embarrassment on the other person's part or like, don't worry, I still see, don't worry, I still see that you're women. Yeah. Like, I they don't want to. think they're being politically correct. Yeah. Like, there's a kindness, the there can be a kindness to it, a, a misplaced kindness. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that. I've had that experience, the two of us together, mm -hmm. uh, Rhea and I together. I've also had the experience of like, uh, somebody being able to place me because I have one long side <laughs> and then like having and then um, assuming that Rhea's like a cis dude and then for her that becomes a little bit of a safety issue sometimes like I, I know that that's how she feels that is that she's waiting for like the other shoe to drop and the person to realize right. that they've made a mistake and then for that embarrassment over nothing to then cause a potential safety issue to mm -hmm. happen. So it's, I don't know like what would be the thing that would make, I feel like it's literally guys. Like I, like, thanks guys. Or like, like that's what, that's what makes me feel the most mm -hmm. safe in that situation. What would make you feel the most safe in that Just situation? Just thanks. Yeah. But without the thing, you know, it's hard. Yeah. It is hard because you, you know, people are like, right this way, ladies. You know, yeah. in a restaurant. And so they're like, what do you, would you want us to say? And I guess you'd have to just have the period after the word right this, right this way. way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that works too. Absolutely. I'm into that. Yeah. yeah. There's um, something about when people say ladies, the reason I don't like it, besides that it's just the grossest word in the world, it's so much like panties. Ladies. Ladies. But, I've, but how are you supposed to get people to... Uh, clap at a stand-up comedy show if you can't use the word. Ladies and ladies. gentlemen. <laughs> no, I just mean ladies. ladies. Am I right? Yeah. Am I right, ladies? People. Actually, that's for real, though. Folk. Ladies and gentlemen is such a staple yeah. of my industry. You have to say friends, I guess, folks, people. Uh, folks is also hard to get away with because it's, like, it's actually my preferred, if I'm tweeting or yeah. something like that, like the written, yeah. I prefer folks. But it's really hard to get away with being on stage and saying like, well, folks, because right. suddenly you're like sitting down with a corncob pipe. <laughs> it just becomes like very uh, folksy. It becomes very folksy. That's the word for it. Yeah. <laughs> so I do use, I use, I use guys on stage. I will use ladies and gentlemen and become but aware then of it. If I was in the audience, I would be upset because I would feel like right. you're ignoring me. No, I mean, I hear you. I'm, then I become aware of it. I'm trying to fix it in the moment. It's a, it's a verbal tick at yeah. this point, you know, it's like built into the act for years and only my awareness of that not being like inclusive of the entire room yeah. is. It's all new. Straight up a year old. Yeah, like really, you know, for so yeah. for me, it, it does feel like, and I haven't been touring a lot of that time because yeah. I've been make, I've been here in LA, um, making. You can do a things television. that sound similar, so that yeah. they like JDs and Littlemen. <laughs> yeah. and so you're gonna JD's say the little. thing that yeah. makes them feel like you're saying the thing, and then they won't notice. Yeah, I said guys. <laughs> I said guys at a. I was trying really hard to say guys, um, at a show one time, and then a, a woman who was probably in her 60s, waited afterwards uh, and was like, I didn't fight for your rights in the 70s to be called a guys. I'm a woman. And I just went like, I'm, I'm sorry. I totally, 
Like, Great. Thank, thank you I for waiting. I just don't know what to say anymore. Like, it's so glad you waited for yeah. me to get off stage to yeah. tell me this. I, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to try to navigate inclusivity in, yeah. a, in a way that feels um, uh, speech natural mm -hmm. when your job is to speak. And it's yeah. new. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm not trying. Yeah. I'll try forever. Yeah. Happy to try forever. Yeah. Just is an evolution. Yeah, it is. I want to talk a little bit about you. I mean, even before we we started talking, and I, I just, I feel like I have an awareness because of what my job is like. So you're sort of a spokesperson. I don't know that that's what you meant to be. Mm -hmm. Did you mean to be a spokesperson? Didn't see it coming. Yeah. I, I maybe thought I was going to be a feminist so spokesperson. It didn't occur to me that I was going to be a queer spokesperson or a trans spokesperson. Spokesperson. Trans spokesperson. Trans spokesperson. <laughs> yeah. Trans spokesperson. When, when did you realize you might be? Um, maybe a couple of years ago. I mean, yeah, as Transparent started getting more successful and I realized that I was going to have these public speaking moments like awards and stuff. I realized that I was speaking for the whole trans community. Was there a specific moment or I think from the very like first time I realized that I was doing public speaking. I mean, I do remember having a feeling, having a moment like in my room, in my bedroom at my other house, like where the mantle, where the mantle was clear to me. Where I was like, holy shit. I gotta get this right. I'm do I'm doing this for all these people. Like they're gonna look to me as their spokesperson didn't really occur to me about my own gender identity or my own queerness even. It felt more like as the daughter of a trans person, this has become, I was, I felt like sort of the Ivanka of the, you know, the, probably the way she feels. <laughs> I'm sure it's really similar. She does seem like she carries the weight of the world on her shoulder. Right. She, she was like, it's really okay, thoughtful. this is what my parent is up yeah. to. This is going to mean something to me as well. <laughs> right. Did you have a conversation with your parent? as you realized that? Like, was there a moment where you said, I think I'm going to have to be this thing? I think it was like our whole family is going to become this. Mm -hmm. um, because when my parent first, when I, when I first told my parent that I had written the pilot in the first place, before it even got picked up, they were pretty nervous about what this would mean for people who knew them and knew us and, you know, close friends, acquaintances, total strangers... Um, each one is a different kind of reality when the show comes out. So, you know, my parent wasn't really out, I, I don't think, in the beginning. And so there was a real concern. And, I, concern. and I think at one point my sister and I and my parent, all four of us, really sat and had the conversation of like, oh, we are, we are our, our family, because of the Faffermans, are in some ways going to be a mascot for some people, a mascot family. Um, so let's go get big bear costumes and just go for it. No, um, <laughs> no, I just, but my, my MAPA who, you know, we use that word MAPA that they use on transparent. Like she, you know, we all had to slowly but surely accept that mantle and say, people are going to look to us to speak for, for the community. And that's fine. It's more like an honor and, and we feel so lucky that we get to. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's I'm so happy that it feels that way. Because I don't know that it would feel that way to everybody. That's, yeah. That's really great that it does yeah. for you guys. I think what, you know, where I'm coming from is just I use my family and my personal experience and my life in my art too. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there's a – you have to write what you know and especially when it's an underrepresented viewpoint that you happen to fall into. Yeah. Uh, you have to talk about it, but it is a weird situation to be in yeah. in terms of just, um, I don't know, like living one's life yeah. in a way that other people consume. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing to be. Yeah. I always knew that when I started doing comedy, like I don't think it's gross to think about my act as a product. I don't yeah. think it's gross to think about me as a small business person, but I am very aware of like what things – fall on the line of like, that's actually that person's thing to talk about. Right. I don't know, very early on, I was processing a lot of how my dad took my coming out on stage. Yeah. And my parents are 
supportive, like to a fault and would bring like giant swaths of their friends to come sit in the audience and hear me talk about like how Mm. difficult it was. And it was a weird position to be in. Yeah. Have you, do you hear from like people that you get, that you grew up with or? A little bit. Yeah. You know, because we have Facebook so we can all kind of find each other. All right. Well, Jill, um, what's next? What are you working on right now? Let's see. I'm getting ready to go to Provincetown for vacation for two weeks. Have you been there? Yes. It's so fun. It is fun. And I'm really putting a lot of effort into those two weeks, the same way the Kardashians do when they go on vacation. They talk about making memories. They produce chunks of their life to generate memory making. (laughs) So to my prior point. That's a way that you end up having fun. Like you have fun because you realize after the past few hours you've been making memories by like renting a boat and jumping off the boat and then yelling YOLO when you jump (laughs) that you're doing to be funny, to make fun of people who make memories on purpose for their TV show. That's kind of how I get to... Wow, Try to you, figure out you are really backing into that. I really I love that. <laughs> That's what we do. We go to we go to Provincetown. We try to figure out how to relax, and then we do so by imitating the way the Kardashians party on a boat or on I, vacation. I think Provincetown is a fascinating uh, resort town. It's a so it's like historically you must kill there. Do you have you ever gone to do comedy there? Um, I have, but... There's a lot of gay men. I was going to say, I was there, there and no I didn't dykes. realize that it was Twink Week. <laughs> like, that is their descriptor, not mine. Yeah. And I feel um, like you'd do well at Twink Week. They were less interested yeah. in me. Yeah. I mean, there, I, it was a situation, you have to busk, you have to stand in front of your theater. If you perform in Provincetown, it's normal. You have to be out there on the street. to be out there like, hey, come see my show tonight. And you hand out flyers. And I was literally handing out flyers to go see me do stand up next to uh, somebody who was getting like a, just an on the street blowjob. Wow. Right. They're getting one on the street. Yeah. And so, I mean, like. Now that's never seen that. I, I, this was also a first for me. And I also felt like, I don't, I'm not sure that you should come to this show. Yeah. When you could just experience this Stand show. Here. This seems like a, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. It is, but I haven't, I got rebooked for like, whatever it's called, like, like lesbian week or yeah. whatever the thing I is. I think it's ladies. Yeah. Right. Uh, last year, but I had to cancel. I couldn't, I couldn't go because I had like something come up with, uh, take my wife. Something but I would up, be so come curious. Something up with a traumatic memory of seeing a man getting a blowjob <laughs> on the street. Yeah, oh, I don't know. I will look right at it. That's me. Yeah, as a as a human. Well, what I mean, I'm fascinated in P Town and Provincetown uh, about the Dick Doc. Did you hear about the Dick Doc? No, but it sounds like an amazing clock. It's not Dick. It's not like Dick Doc o'clock. Okay, <laughs> tell me more about it. Well, there is a time that is Dick Doc o'clock, which is when everybody goes to a particular hotel and there's a dock out in the back. Oh, they go like under, under the dock. You can go and get fondled. I have heard about Blown. this. <laughs> and so I almost did stand up when I was there because I wanted to talk about like the lesbian version, like where the lesbians are all meeting up, you know, because it seems so absurd just to really imagine like you and me and like 98 other lesbians like going somewhere where we're all kind of like <laughs> walking up to each other and stroking our pussies and then like taking turns, giving each other all sex and then like moving on. <laughs> I mean, right. Absolutely. We wouldn't or do such a looking thing. looking at art together, reading books. Right. And so, yes. About those. I started to think about like the snatch patch. The snatch patch is good. <laughs> I think you can get that started. Where women go and just like make tea for each other. <laughs> I, when I think of Pro- Provincetown, I think about the fact that like if, Ma- since Massachusetts is, a, is that arm, yeah. that like, like in terms of queer history, you could not go further off the United States or right. you'd fall into the ocean. That is true. Like that is where queer people had to go. That is true. Have yeah, the resort. Went. Like it's literally cool. like, can we be here or yeah. do you need us to? Right. Actually fall off the tip and die. And then that's how gay cruises were born. Yeah. Like, no, you cannot be in Provincetown. <laughs> Please get on a boat. But like Fire Island, same thing. Everything same is thing. We're just like pushed yeah. into the water, get off way the edge. out there. I know. I'm excited for you that you're going I'm on vacation. I'm excited too. That's what I'm going to do for the next few weeks. And then I'm going to come back and do some more of my rabble rousing. Right. My transparenting. My I love dicking. How do you- My s- toppling. My general- yeah, your general toppling. toppling. Your general toppling. 
So is, how do you stay motivated and, and amped to get back in the ring? I just, I'm always motivated and amped. I have to try not to be. Oh, we're the same. Yeah. Yeah. I wake up motivated and amped. I have to go, remember that there are humans who love you, who want your attention. Oh. <laughs> but I could, if How's left to my own devices, I would write all day long and I would rabble rouse all day and I would produce and I love it. I it love makes it me too. really happy. Why do you, we're, do you like need it? I need, I feel like I need, I need to it. work. Yeah, I love working. I love. I relax working. by working. Me too. Yeah, we're weird. I don't relax by relaxing. Yes, we're unusual people. That's why I, I have to plan a good time. I and I, I totally understand the backing into it. Yeah, where you're we're like, gonna. Imitate. I'm gonna get so many things out of this. Yes. I'm gonna, I have a box of. I can check all of these. Right, we're gonna name it. We're gonna name it a Kardashian esque making memory. So we need to rent a boat. Poor Rhea on our honeymoon. I was like, I don't think you understand how many waterfalls I've researched on Hawaii, but like we could like, like as long the, as we're in Maui, framing. yeah, we gotta hike up. She was like, Does Rhea know how to relax? Yes. Well, that's great. You're very lucky. I am very lucky. Uh, she does know how to relax. It's a major point of tension in our relationship in a good way. Yeah. I think it's like a chosen a chosen. Tension point. Yeah. Everybody needs one. Yeah. Yes. One of a few. Yeah. But yeah. One what of are your is. other ones? Well, um, You're like I don't feel like- crackers. No, I don't feel like I need permission to do anything. I think, I think I was raised a little bit, I was raised in this like very macho Italian household and kind of like a boy because some, my parent, my dad specifically could see like something was going on with me. Mm. What you were talking about earlier about like- you're 16 and you get boobs and people at bus stops are perceiving you a certain way. That didn't happen to me. Hmm. And I don't know why that is. I think I've, I don't know why that is. I don't, feel like that you've always had a bit of a lesbian posture and people could read it from miles away. Yeah. You do have a lesbian jawline. I, I, heard that of such as, a thing? I take that as a compliment. I That's have a friend like who pointed really, out there's such a thing as lesbian yeah. jawline that you can just look at a particular woman yeah. and like there's something about a particular like chin jaw. Yes. That is dikey. Yes. Biologically maybe? Oh my God. I hope it's biologically. Yeah. I was definitely perceived as something's going on with her from a very early mm-hmm. age. Um, I When I was a little, little kid- kids would call me fat because they were like, I don't think they knew the word dyke. And mm. they were trying to figure out what was going on. You had like a fat Even personality. parents were like, I don't really, like I literally had like a friend's parent that would be like, I think you're a little chubby. Really? And I would be like, I mean, I had this body. I'm not like, I'm kind of just right. I'm just normative. pretty just right. Just normative, right? Yeah. And um, very patrolled around that. That's gross. And I think it's just because they- It's so gross. I can't stand that. Yeah, it was fucking tough. I mean, I had like a, then I had like a horrific eating disorder because I like- I the patrolling. The patrolling and then also like the misplaced patrolling because if you're perceived as being a little girl, like people don't jump to gay first mm-hmm. as a, as the, the way that they would for like- right. A boy who's showing, we don't have a better word than effeminate behavior. Um, Signs of non-boyness. Signs of of (laughs) non-boyness. They're like, you are this. If you're a little girl, they're like, we don't know what's going on with you, but it's definitely something we need to rein in. Yeah. Weren't you like a volleyball champion? I was was not a volleyball champion. I was a swimmer. I was a big swimmer. I was a a three-sport athlete. I played rugby in college. All of this stuff was happening, and I had no idea what what was going on. You just just, thought you were sporty. I was like, I'm sporty. I have this jawline. This is the jawline (laughs) of a woman that wants to be with men. (laughs) Cis men. Yeah. Really specific cis men that are the captain of the football team. Yeah. Yeah. And did, but didn't you, did you, ha- were you like homecoming queen or something? I was, we were, my my boyfriend and I were voted couple most likely to live happily ever after. Yeah. We were literally class remember, couple. Yeah. yeah. I remember listening to this on the podcast. And- yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing to look back on it and just go like, how did that happen? Because I agree with you. I think that I present something is going on. Mm-hmm. Like little kids know it. Mm-hmm. Like I've had experiences with little kids where they're like, are you, what are you? And mm-hmm. then I'm like. You know, whatever. I don't, you know, whatever you, what, what do you think I am kind yeah. of thing? But did like you have David any, Bowie. 
Did you have any of that? A visionary. <laughs> I was a visionary. Did you have any of that when you were a kid? No, I was pretty, pr- people kind of, I mean, again, the thing of like realizing that I was being seen and that my main value was in how I looked was kind of the thing. But I also think like I was kind of cute and I was kind of, whatever it was, I succeeded at this kind of passing thing so that I was able to weave in how I was being, you know, I guess it's a consumability. I made myself consumable. I fit right into the way that women and girls are asked to fit into what men see. Again, not having this word patriarchy. The word patriarchy is so annoying to so many people because it sounds like women's studies, but it literally means that, you know, this kind of air that we breathe that we don't even know we're breathing. It's like the way a fish kind of looks around and goes like, oh, water. They don't really know they're in water. I feel that way about patriarchy. You know, you don't really realize it until you start to do things like reverse, reverse, reverse the gender. What would it, what would it be like if men walked around thinking about whether or not they looked cute? And what would it be like if men walked around with their heels slightly raised and their toes pointed? And and the things that you know, the things that happen with holding your stomach and wearing heels and putting on makeup, they're talked about like products. Well, you do or don't like shoes. Oh, you do or don't like makeup. Oh, you do or don't, you know want to wear a waist trainer. But when you add them all up, there are all these kinds of tools of consenting to being seen first before being yes. known. And that had an effect on my own relationship with my mind, with my ideas. It's only probably in the past five years coming out as queer and hanging around with people like Eileen Miles. I'm going to jump you on your queero question. Mm, okay. Spending time with Eileen Miles, who's like one of my heroes and was somebody I dated and loved and still love, who had so much fun really um, indulging in her own mind, thinking thoughts, loving her own thoughts, saying them, sharing them, writing them, shouting them without any sense of like, well, I'm a woman, so I have to, she's like, fuck all that. And that's, I think, has that has been my biggest revolution as I, as I have begun to let go of certain things like makeup, the curling iron, even these kinds of ideas about myself as somebody who was like un, unmade up, there was still a certain amount of my indoor look and my outdoor look, a certain amount of like, I'm going to put my look on. Here's been my biggest revelation as I start to get rid of those things. I have become a more interesting person because I kind of go out into the world and feel like my job is to be interested in being interesting and interested in myself. And there's like an idea about authenticity and clarity that is my reason for leaving the house. And I think in the past it used to be like, be cute, be liked, be likable. Wow. I mean, I think there's a really big difference between you and I in that you were able to to do the thing. I, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. And and I, I did end up being good at it, and I did end up having all kinds of access right. to all kinds of, ex- kinds of experiences because certain powerful men thought they were going to have sex with me. So I, I was doing things like getting going backstage places and wanting to be near power and using this feeling of attracting as a way to get what I wanted. And I do want to just add, though, that I don't want to, like, degrade femme presentation and say that like if you're really, really femme, it's really hard to be a person of ideas. I just want to say that for me, I noticed that when I was dressing femme, I carried around this kind of low-level resentment where I wouldn't be sharing my mind. Absolutely. That's and I'm also talking I'm also talking about social pressure more than like I'm talking about the social pressure to like if you if you do present in that femme way, then there's a perceived like okay, so maybe this person will sleep with me. Like that yes. always being on the table versus that like never yeah. being on the table with me. You know, I entered, I like entered this career, you know, like, so, like sorry dudes, That's I so have good. nothing for you. That's so good. I mean, it is That's good. That's amazing. It's, it is good. It's really good and powerful and also uh, sometimes very scary because you realize, because because I can see it and I can't participate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's good though. I think that's in some ways like what gives you your voice and your confidence and makes you like so so confident and so funny, so young, you know, like you kind of came out this way. 
<laughs> sure, yeah. And came out this way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. You know, I feel like really drawn to asking you about your hair. Oh, my new How hair. How it feels. The best. I can just see like me not wanting any of it soon. I've just been going shorter and shorter and shorter. Like what it, so I've, I have actually never had all, well, I had like, I guess shortish hair, mm-hmm. but not what you, what the, the, what you're doing, which is just straight up crew cut, straight up crew cut. Yeah. I've never had Army that. Army ready. Army ready. How does it feel? It feels great. It's like, all I've got is my face guys. How have you got noticed else. your perception of self changing? Have you noticed that at all? Or have you? Yeah. Not- I mean, it's, it, there's been like a slow march towards butchness over the past few years and you know, I'm still often in a bad mood, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> life is hard, but it's for different reasons. You know, it's like um, I can't blame the things I used to blame, you know, and I used to blame certain things like, oh, like my hair, I have to do hair, and like, especially for any kind of public thing. I have to put on makeup before I speak. I have to fuck with a curling iron to make my curls look smooth. Like whatever it was I was doing, those were annoying things. And so as you start to shave off all these things in your life and go, okay, it's not going to be about this. It's not going to be about that. And you're just left with yourself with no hair to sw- to swish around. I mean, I can't even change my part. <laughs> it's just like, all I have is me. And that at this point is really comforting. Do you feel free? I think so. As free as like a Jewish neurotic overthinker is ever going to feel. Absolutely. What does free mean? Uh, it means more time to do work. Exactly. <laughs> free to pressure I myself think, to write more. Yes, exactly. Yeah. More time to create more shows. Yeah. Fill up your life even more. Yeah. Um, Jill, it's this has been so wonderful to oh, talk to you. good. It's a dream come true for me. Yeah, this is the best. And I know that you jumped the, I know you said, I'm going to jump the question, but I would love to hear even just as the, like our final thing yeah. before we leave. Um, I've been asking everybody about a queero, which yeah. is, you know, somebody who gave them the presence of mind, the, the yeah. inspiration to become more themselves. So talk yeah, a little bit about Yeah, I want to talk about, about Eileen Miles a little bit more because I just picked up a book of hers. I mean, I have her books all over my house, but I just picked up a book of hers, a book of poetry. And I realized that one of the things, I feel like if there are any women who are sort of queer or almost queer or thinking about being queer or they want to be queer, but they're scared to be queer, like just buy a bunch of Eileen Miles poetry books or buy Chelsea Girls because she's so at home in her just like delight in women. And she loves women in all ways that women are. And she just talks so just like licking her chops about pussy and how great it is. And just like she describes all the pussy in the world. And she just does it with such like a, mm, I just had like a great Chinese meal. Like she's just like <laughs> so into it. And she and talk about drawing the lines for ourselves. If you draw the line like out here that says you're a visionary or I draw the, draw the line out here that says I'm an artist. What happens when you read Eileen Miles' books is like she draws this line around having like a gigantic appetite for women in all of their myriad womanness, all kinds of things that women do and kind of just like inspires you to have awful crushes and to just like bang your head against the wall, go after somebody. She kind of just like helps create this there is no there is no lesbian mind, this public lesbian mind. There are so many for straight cis men. They can be Woody Allen or Philip Roth. They can like read so much literature that helps them understand how to be awful or how to be vulnerable or how to chase after somebody or how to make mistakes. They can see themselves reflected in so much literature and television and movies. And so now we're just starting to do things like that, like on Transparent, where I love to write scenes where Allie and Sid are just like fucking around putting on a dildo and talking about what they're you know, what, what they're going to do with it and being casual, you know, with queer sex. And Eileen does that with words. She does that with poetry. She does that with literature. It's just like, here's a big, crazy world of her mind for lesbians and wannabe lesbians all over the world to splash around in. Yes. Yes. I mean, what I love about what you're saying is uh, that it's the whole thing. Space creation. Yeah. Just talking about taking up space, taking up creating space, space inviting other people into that yep. space. I think it's what you do so well that that I am so um, just like genuinely grateful for. 
Thank you. And you're doing it yeah. too with this podcast. It's so awesome. I can't wait to Yeah. That's the goal. Spread the word. Yeah. And just imagine people listening to it and feeling, you know, at home as if they were invited to this this conversation and this mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Get over here. We're yeah. ready. Come on. Yeah. We're splashing around. Thank you so much. Jill. Yeah. Of course. Let's go find now who we are. Who we are. Well, listeners, that's our show. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Cameron Esposito. We are recorded by Matt Brousseau, produced by Sierra Catow and Feral Audio. Our theme song is by AW, and you can find them at listentoaw.com. Thanks for listening to Query. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.